If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the Economic and Business History Channel of the New Books Network. My name is Paula de la Cruz Fernandez, and I have the honor today to be speaking with Professor Susie Porter. Dr. Susie Porter is Professor in History and in Gender Studies at the University of Utah. She teaches History of Latin America and Gender and Power in Latin America. Professor Porter is currently uh, leading some amazing teaching projects, uh, such as the Gender Studies 2500 Here I Stand and the International Federation of Democratic Women, Gender Politics and Women's Opposition Movements in Mexico. And of course, I, uh, we would welcome any comments that uh, she might give us about these projects. Um, her most recent publications are the chapter Gender, Race, and the Evolution of Middle-Class Identity in the Mexico City Press, 1820 to 1900, in the Latin American uh, Middle Classes, uh, in the book Latin American, The Latin American Middle Classes, edited by Claudia Stern, Mario Barbosa Cruz, and Ricardo Lopez. And I also want to mention a very um, interesting publication is Digital Gender Collections at the Rosario Castellanos Library of the Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México, uh, which is published in the Latin American History uh, part of the Oxford Research Encyclopedia, which is a great resource to um, to get a sense of this uh, of main collections like the one that you um, write about. Uh, see, Dr. Porter is also the author of a very important book, at least a very important book for me, um, Working Women in Mexico City, Public Discourses and Material Conditions, 1879 to 1931, published in 2003. And in today's podcast, we will be talking about her uh, most recent book, From Angel to Office Worker, Middle-Class Identity and Female Consciousness in Mexico, 1890 to 1950. 
this book is part of the Mexican Experience series of the University of Nebraska Press. And um, I think it's a must read for anyone doing research on 20th century women's issues in Mexico, uh, labor history, the creation of the middle class in Mexico and Latin America. And I would also say um, uh, on the issue of gender and work identity formation uh, within the history of capitalism. Welcome, Susie, to the, pro uh, to the program. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate the invitation, Paula. Um, I, I, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you became interested in the history of Mexico and women's identity. Well, when I think about um, maybe specifically what inspired me to, to write this book, uh, I could talk about it in two ways, one in terms of my own personal experience And then two, in terms of my professional uh, formation uh, my and the way that I enter into debates with other scholars about the history of Mexico and Latin America. And in the first regard, um, I was inspired by perhaps the, my own experience with regard to class identity. So my parents were both from a working class backgrounds. Um, for a very short period of time when I was small, I lived in a um, very uh, upper class neighborhood, but um, you know, we rented our house. So it was a kind of a, a disjuncture in terms of my experience. My mother worked as a secretary. My father worked in construction as a gardener, um, restaurants, a lot of other uh, occupations. And so my, my experience of, of socioeconomic status and my class identity, I was very aware of class identity because of those disjunctures. Um, and then at one point, my parents divorced, and that led to a lot of instability and up and downs in my own economic status and class identity. Um, and that variation and instability informed my way of thinking about class and just raised questions about well, what is, what is middle class? What is working class? How do we, what defines that? Um, so that's my personal background um, in terms of thinking about class and why Mexico. Um, I grew up in California and, and California and Mexico were so intertwined in terms of people and customs and economics that it really um, felt like a part of my life and history that I needed to understand more and to make more visible um, in the world at large. With regard to uh, professional debates about, you know, how I came, so how did I come to this topic through, uh, through the profession? So when I was in graduate school in the early 1990s, Latin American his historiography in general and Mexican history in particular were dominated by studies of rural and urban workers, so campesinos and obreros. Um, that was particularly the case in Mexico where historical studies were shaped by the legacies and rhetoric of the Mexican Revolution that had occurred in 1910 and purported to support, um, to center the rights of rural and urban workers. Um, I was interested in, in, as you mentioned, my first book was on working women in Mexico City. Um, and in the pr process of writing, so, so I fit within that historiography. I was interested in women in, in factories. Um, but as I started 
researching the book, you know, I was in the archives on, you know, opening up dusty boxes of old papers, trying to figure out how to put this history together. I would come across information um, and had to make a decision about what was going to be in that book about working women and what wasn't. So seamstresses, are seamstresses, you know, working class or not? Well, some of them work in factory-like conditions and others worked out of the home. Um, street vendors, are those workers a part of industrialization? They're not factory workers, but they are integral to the economic development of industrialization. Um, and secretaries, are secretaries in or out? Are they working class or are they middle, middle class? So as I came across documents and people um, from the past, I had to just, I had to try and define them for that first project. Were they a part of the working class? Um, and so it brought me to those questions that I said I was also thinking about personally about how do we define um, class identity? And the other reason I came to this topic was in a way, it's kind of a political project, a personal, that um, comes from my personal politics, which is to say, I, and most of us are workers. I might be a professor, someone else might be a high level manager in a company, but we all work. We all spend most of our day at work. Um, of course, there are differences in our status and our access to power, what we get paid, the conditions of our labor, um, but it occurs to me that work is fundamental in shaping our daily lives and how we think about the world. So um, that perspective, that's a perspective that I take in particular with this book on, on, sec on secretaries. How did the conditions of work in people's daily lives shape their sense of themselves, their class identity and their, their politics? Thank you. That was wonderful introduction. Uh, and in a way, you already start talking about secretaries and why secretaries. Um, but let perhaps uh, we can expand a little bit more on that. Why secretaries uh, among others? Uh, you said also seamstresses were in between. Um, are all secretaries, is, is being a secretary uh, definitely um a working class, I mean, a middle class position? Well, so um, the book, obviously the answer to that question is going to change over time because context is important. What is the larger context of, of the workforce, the job options? What's the larger context of how people are thinking about class and what is, what are the, what's the relative value of those, those wages? So, in the late 19th century, when women uh, in Mexico City began working in offices, that off office work was very much thought of as a middle-class occupation. And it was thought of that way for a few reasons. Um, most of the women, uh, uh, in order to, well, the work was associated with education, right? So women uh, sought uh, out uh, a degree to be able to, to enter into office work. So that connection between education and office work marked it as middle class. Um, right. 
there was a history of thinking of government jobs as middle class. So in the late 19th, early 20th century, when women took to um, office work, it was thought of as middle class. It's not in a factory. Um, it's inside. Um, it's associated with people wearing suits and hats, not with overalls. Um, but at the same time, for women in particular, that work was paid wages that were equivalent to working class wages. So by the 1920s, for example, um, secretaries earned wages, the majority of them earned wages that were very similar to that earned by um, a mechanic or a carpenter um, or a factory worker. So um, there's a, and that's a part of the puzzle that I think is really interesting, right? The wages, if we define these jobs by wages, they're working class. If we define them in terms of education and, and professionalization and culturally, they were thought of as, as middle class. As time goes by, some women enter into, especially by the late 1920s and early 1930s, some women move up through the ranks to higher level positions that are paid better salaries. Um, and then eventually women enter into that work through a university education, uh, which then means that they really come from a different uh, socioeconomic. Right. Right. Um, the book, the book's title uh, takes us to a moment of transition. We can start uh, now kind of going through the book, uh, starting in the late 19th century. Um, this moment of transition in societies uh, and women's percep perception of what it meant to be a woman and how much domesticity uh, was part of that identity. Um, could you point out how the change occurs, um, you know, between this idea that women had to be angels of the home uh, and, you know, to the uh, other, to the next idea, I guess, um, that women uh, were, um, I mean, that work was part, work outside the home actually uh, meant a great deal for, for their um, identity and definition as, uh, as middle-class women. Right. So um, you referred to the title of the book, From Angel to Office Worker, and that title is meant to signal the shift in the some of the essential components of women's uh, identity as middle class. So in the late 19th century, middle class identity held the held women's location in the home as, as central. So middle class women reigned in the home. They took care of children. They took care of food preparation, of clothing. Um, their productive role was centered in the home and that the, the, the middle-class identity at that time held women's domesticity as, as a key marker of that middle-classness, if you will. Um, but then there are shifts uh, in the Mexi Mexican economy in the late 19th century so that middle-class households found themselves in increasingly difficult circumstances. And this is an area that there, there's still a lot of research to be to be done, but we do know that the federal government had favored large-scale agricultural and industrial production to the detriment of the poor and middle, uh, sort of working class and, and middle class. And that by the late 19th century, there was a decline in occupations historically available to the middle class. There was a decline in their purchasing power um, the newspapers are full 
of um, conversations about the suffering of the middle class, people not being able to buy the kinds of clothes they think are appropriate, having to stretch their household incomes to pay for education. Um, the other thing that happened was that the relative value of women's labor in the household changed. So the things that women used to produce within the home increasingly could be purchased as consumer goods, which means then that middle-class households needed um, currency. They needed money to be able to purchase those items. And so in order to maintain a middle-class lifestyle, more and more women needed to leave the home and work outside of the home. So there's this crack then in that, that the primacy of domesticity and women leave through that, women exit the, uh, the domestic sphere little by little through that that crack, that need for um, for income for households. And so what you had then was um, over time, so a, a shift in uh, the role of domesticity in middle class identity. And if in the 1900s, 19 teens, what was acceptable was for daughters to leave the home and work, by the 1920s, women, uh, it wasn't just young women before they got married who were leaving the home to, to, to work in offices, but more and more it was working mothers as well. Their conversation emerged about that. And I, I, I think part of your question was about continuity, right? About what, um, what are some of the continuities? Right. And I think that domesticity, in fact, um, is one of those continuities. So domesticity continued to be important for women's class identity, even when they were no longer, you know, the angel of the home, uh, which is to say that instead of discussions about the centrality of women in the home, um, the discussion was about, well, why are women going outside of the home to go to a secretarial school? Well, it's to get an education, um, but they'll get married and uh, won't go to work. Or um, you you saw conversations in the 1920s, women saying, I wish I could stay home with my children, but I have to leave the home and work. And so Eve, I think what you see there is that domesticity continues to be an anchor. Reference, the very reference to domesticity um, continues. It's just decentered. The, the, the sort of place of domesticity and the configuration of factors that defined women's class identity shifted. Thank you. I think that is really interesting, um, the centrality of domesticity and how, and perhaps later we can still talk about that centrality in today's, um, um, you know, identity. And I um, in that sense, uh, also domesticity also influenced the way or shaped what was what was the type of work that was available for women, right? Um, in even uh, not working class women, but even middle class women, what um, what was you know what this what did this office work imply? And I'm guessing the question also kind of you know, was it the same office work for men and for women or, uh, and what is the, you know, kind of the space that they are creating in the office for women? Um, 
that is uh, as opposed to men? Yeah, so obviously there would be several factors that shape the work options that that people had and then what kinds of work that they could take. Um, and taking a little bit of a step back, it's important to think about the role of, of race, of, um, as you say, women's uh, status as mothers or not. Um, you know, when does this work enter into their life trajectory in terms of, of, of motherhood. Um, and women had historically in Mexico in the, the late 19th century, by and large, middle-class women had avoided working in public spaces, right? So public space had been identified with um, indigenous and mestizo peoples in particular. So street vendors, um, the seamstresses and domestic workers that transited the streets um, because domestic work was in fact the primary occupation for, for women if we were talking globally. Um, so these jobs, um, it, it's difficult to get at the question of race, but the the office, the women who take office jobs, there's a there's a there's a way that it's associated with whiteness, right? With a, with a, a level of ethnic, uh, with respectability that's defined in terms of education, but also in terms of race. Um, and yet, as I said, a lot, those jobs were not very well paid in the beginning. You even had incidences of women who would take an office job and they didn't even get paid. <laughs> it was the promise of getting a permanent position that encouraged them to take a job um, without pay, hoping that it would become a, a permanent position, but it was sought after enough that that, that they would do that. Um, but then the 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 I think the other thing that this kind of work offered women is in the 1920s there was just an absolute boom in office jobs. So Mexican Revolution broke out in 1910. Uh, by 1917. Um, some of the violence associated with the revolution is is winding down. Uh, the government or the sort of dominant forces come together to write a constitution in 1917. And there are all sorts of promises that were made by revolutionary leaders and um, programs that were uh, established or promised in that constitution of 1917. So by, by the 1920s, there's a massive expansion in the bureaucracy to carry out the literacy campaigns that were promised to carry out um, the regulation of, of industrial development to, to uh, the Department of Labor to negotiate uh, labor conflict um, and on and on. Um, and who's going to do that work, right? Somebody's got to type. <laughs> Someone's got to take notes. Someone has to type up the notes. Someone needs to um, do the duplicate correspondence. Someone has to file all those papers. And that work was um, done by and large by women. Right. Um, wonderful. So you already talked a little bit about uh, the kind of the next transition, which was marked by, by the revolution. Um, and another, another uh, important topic in your book is the um, the women's movement and uh, and organization. So, um, 
in chapter three, I was fascinated by the experiences uh, you bring up of women writers and how they spoke of their work um, and their efforts uh, for organizing. And so can you talk about uh, Maria Cárdenas and Leonor Judge um, and what were their venues of expression? What were the you know women's venues of expression at this time? Uh, educated women, of course, and how they they talk about their you know their changing roles after after the revolution. Sure. So a, a little bit of, of context, um, and then before I jump into those specific women that that you mention, um, the. As I mentioned in the book, the 1920s is a, a time period when women really have one foot in the past and one foot in the future. It's a it's an important moment of transition, um, and look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Different historians have, have, have started to, to write about that one. Um, Mary Kay Vaughn um, and Maria Teresa Fernandez Aceves, um, among many others. An, an example of this moment of transition would be Gabriela Mistral, who is from Chile, but who spent time in, in Mexico City. And she, uh, Mistral wrote Lecturas para Mujeres, Readings for Women in 1924, that really celebrated women's domain as one rooted in the domestic sphere and lamented the possible loss of associated values if women were to seek work outside of the home and just left um, to seek uh, work outside of the home. Mm -hmm. and, and, and while she's celebrating female domesticity and sweetness and self-sacrifice and all these female qualities, she herself is trailblazing um, professional life for, for women at the time, um, writing about education, um, uh, involved in educational reform in Mexico. There was a vocational school that was named after her. So she, in a way, epitomizes that that transition, right? That one foot in the past, one in, foot in the of the future. Um, there were also changes uh, in uh, the move for women's vote. Uh, there have been a, a lot of books written on uh, the uh, suffrage movement in the the the, the 1920s. Uh, Ana Lau, Mercedes Zuniga, Gabriela Cano have all written on this topic, um, and that movement for suffrage began as a state by state movement. And in 1922, um, you have the beginning of states giving women uh, limited suffrage. Yucatan in 1922, uh, Chiapas the following year. Um, so there are. There are cultural changes going on. There are changes uh, in women's legal status, the changes associated with the revolution, as I mentioned, and we can talk about that more. But that's the context for um, the specific women that you that you mentioned, uh, Leonor Lack and uh, Maria Rios Cárdenas. 
Cárdenas, Rios Cárdenas was uh, born into a middle-class Mexico City family in the late 1890s. Um, she eventually studied at the National School for Advanced Studies, where she obtained a degree in Spanish literature and language. And she became one of the most prominent writers, publishers, and feminists who worked um, tirelessly in favor of women's inclusion in Mexican political life, including uh, for women's, uh, women's vote. She published a uh, newspaper called Mujer, Woman, in 1923 to 26, uh, that was self-proclaimed as a feminist newspaper. She, uh, the year before that, had written a short novel, Atavismo. Um, and in those projects, those publi publishing projects, she, she, she did a couple of things. When she brought together networks of women to talk about women's issues uh, through that newspaper in particular, and then in her novel and also in the newspaper, uh, raised a lot of really important issues um, for working women at the time. She published articles on sexual harassment in the workforce. So um, that's one important early conversation uh, that appeared in her newspaper. And in that novel, Atavismo, she levels this amazing critique of the way that economics and earning power and class position serve as the foundation for inequality between men and women. Inequality, not only economic, but sexual as well, right? So this book, uh, Atavismo, tells the story of a young woman, Antonina, who works as a secretary, um, or in a, I guess in some sort of clerical position in, in a factory. And she ends up having a relationship with the son of the man who owns the factory. And the book um, points out the way that these two, this woman who's a clerical worker and this man who comes from a privileged class position come to relationships from radically different position, power, positions of power, both class, but also psychologically, psychological power and in terms of dating. Um, so it's a story of a conquista, of a, of a um, man who, you know, woos a woman, sleeps with her, although that's mentioned in veiled terms in the early 1920s. Antonina ends up pregnant and alone. He dumps her and um, she ends up uh, getting married to someone else to cover up the shame of that, that uh, pregnancy out of wedlock. Now, the idea of having to get married to cover up a pregnancy is a... Uh, um, we might judge that from the perspective of now as being, you know, not particularly forward looking. Um, but the book, by making that, by pointing out the inequality, that the way socioeconomic inequality shapes dating relationships, um, that was very forward thinking of, of Dios Cardenas uh, in that work. With regard to Le Leonor Lack, she also is an important figure um, originally from Barcelona, she uh, immigrated with her family to Mexico when she was in her early teens. She and her sister Guermina both went to commercial to a secretarial school and became important figures within the Mexican federal administration. 
um, and important in the women's movement. And lack is one of the most, she's an, a beautiful writer and one of the most clear voices um, that questioned the primacy of marriage and motherhood for women and advocated for thinking about the rights of working women and thinking about motherhood as an actual experience, not, not something that was idealized. Um, and I have here one, uh, a couple of just real brief quotes from Lack that I thought I would share because they, they give you such a sense of what, what she uh, was thinking. So she, in the early 1920s, uh, wrote, quote, for a cultivated woman, love is a secondary concern. The home, a refuge at times very agreeable, but not so much so as to isolate her from the world. Maternity is a masterly work of art to which she can dedicate all of her inspiration, but not an absolute and def definitive objective in life, a sentence without appeal that separates her from all material or intellectual work. So what she says there essentially is, okay, I hear you out there world, motherhood is important and we should treat it as such, but it's not the only thing in a woman's life. A woman can have an intellectual life. She can have a life of work outside of the home. And that's a very progressive uh, argument to be making in the early 1920s, but it's the kind of conversations that women in fact were having at that time. Yeah, that's wonderful, thank you. Um, so perhaps we can talk a little bit about that education. Um, and uh, you've, you've mentioned it already. Uh, talk a little bit more about commercial education, how it changed uh, between the early 1900s and 1940. And um, what was the curriculum um, for a woman to become an empleada pública? And I was wondering if it was, if this uh, curriculum certification would also allow you to work in a, you know, in a corporate um, space, but, um, um, you know, and once they were there, the ones they were already in the, in the administration, um, what sort of credentials or networks, you know, help, help them improve their position, help them move up if they did? Yeah, so there's a lot of um, questions to unpack, then I'll answer them briefly. And if you want to, to follow up on something specific, please let me know. Um, so, so the book covers a lot of uh, a long period of time, um, 60 years. Um, so there was a there were changes in women's education during that time, commercial education and, and what that meant for the workforce. So in the f uh, 1903, uh, the government establishes a commercial school, a secretarial school called the Miguel Lerdo de Tejada Escuela Comercial para Señoritas. So the, uh, it's named after Miguel Lerdo de Tejada. It's a, a school for young women, señoritas. And it was 
an opportunity by that time, by the time that that school opened teaching, which had been the one of the very few opportunities for middle class women to work outside of the home. The conditions of that work had been in decline and opportunities were um, uh, were a bit restricted for women. And so commercial school, secretarial school was this huge opportunity and the government wanted to support women's entrance into to that school. And it was a place of um, all female sociability. So it brought women together um, where they um, were really supported in their intellectual interests. Um, I think the word secretarial school sometimes sounds like a vocational space, right? So you learn how to type and take dictation and those things certainly happened, but the school was also a cultural center. Um, women engaged in, um, you know, public ceremonies. They put on um, poetry readings. They did um, all sorts of different kinds of, um, they enacted citizenship through student government at the school um, and established networks that that some of these women kept for decades, for the, the rest of their lives, really, the connections that they established in that school. Um, and then after the revolution, those official government schools continued to be a space that was very closely associated with um, the government and the center of political power. So when the Mexican federal government uh, engages on in the 1920s, a literacy campaign, um, an anti-alcohol campaign, women at those schools, among others, were central. They were the ones who went out and helped. They were part of that group of people who went out and helped educate um, uh, people who didn't know how to read in poor neighborhoods or um, work in these anti-alcohol campaigns. So they became a part of that um, official political culture as well. The That boom in office work in the 1920s meant that offices had grown in, exponentially. And so there's a movement of reorganization and um, clarification of rules in government offices. And with that also came a, a new level of, or clarification of the certification required to, to have certain occupations. Um, so more and more, it became important not only to have a certificate from a commercial school, but a university education as well. And, and that was a temporary, um, barrier for some women, right? Because they, they weren't attending university in large numbers in the 1920s. Um, I think maybe I've, if I've lost a part of your, your question there. Um, um, my, oh. the, yeah, the second part, like how, how would you, once you're there, once you are, you know, um, part of the administration as a, as an office worker, as an empleada pública, uh, what were the options from there? Hmm. Right. So early on, then there, there's a lot of fluidity and mobility. You might have someone who was um, trained as a secretary working as um, essentially as a nurse administering vaccines or someone who was trained as a typist who um, is, you know, overseeing parking cars somewhere in a federal office. Right. So there was a lot of fluidity and move, moving 
women around. Um, and they, the, a typist might be moved from one office to another um, as a kind of interchangeable worker. Um, but, but by the 1920s, those roles become more clarified. And then in the 1930s, the government uh, implements uh, entrance exams, right? Exams that, that, that women needed to, or that every, all federal employees needed to take in order to, to uh, secure a new job position. So that, that, was, that was a positive um, movement in some ways towards that, that uh, system of transparency, of uh, a clear uh, set of requirements in order to move up the scale um, at the workplace, the privileging of seniority uh, and defining what seniority meant uh, in the workplace. All of those changes came with unionization in the 1930s and um, in some ways really benefited, benefited women. Wonderful. Yeah, no, I wonder, um, you know, in comparison to the U.S., uh, where, you know, corporate um, development would be perhaps more important or not, um, you know, or no, or at least federal um, administration would not be as important as in Mexico. I'm not sure, but it would be interesting to see the difference between um, both models of, uh, you know, um, office work. For women, uh, but um, let's go to the next question, which is about inequality, and also, you know, I'm going to connect it to the suffrage movement and how women claim um, their rights. In your book, uh, you argue that inequality in the workplace reinforces larger societal inequality, and um, I wonder if you could discuss that a little farther and how um, you know how secretaries played an important role in, in, in the larger Mexican labor movement and in the suffrage movement. Mm, so, so the question's not about the inequality they faced at work, but rather about the, the suffrage movement. Is that right? Right. I mean, how they connected, you know, work with uh, their political rights. One of the arguments that I make in the book is the for the centrality of working women in the Mexican suffrage movement. Um, oftentimes we think of suffrage as a middle class concern. Um, and uh, Mexico is a little bit different in that regard because there's an acknowledgement of the role of, of um, working women as in obreras. Um, but in fact, we haven't really pinned down the role of factory working women in the suffrage movement. Um, it's that that association comes more from the claims that middle class women made as to who they were representing. And what I argue is that there's a significant part of the Mexican uh, suffrage movement that was in fact a labor movement. It was made up of these women who worked for the federal government as secretaries and typists and filers and um, receptionists who saw the inequality, the, the, the way that they were treated differently from men, that their, that their wages were lower than those of, of men. Um, and that's a little complicated because in the federal government, each job has a set salary or wage regardless of gender. But because of the way that old boy networks shaped promotion, um, 
and preference was given to men for certain kinds of jobs, women faced a a glass ceiling, a limit in terms of how high they could move um, up the, the, the ladder. Um, they also faced sexual harassment. They faced a discrimination at work. And so they, but they weren't, there was no space for them to bring those concerns within the workplace for two reasons. One, the Constitution did not recognize the right of federal employees to organize in unions. And two, the organizations that did form were uh, in the 19, early 1920s were, were made up of men in high level uh, administrative positions. Um, and so there was no space for these women to bring those labor concerns in those spaces. And so essentially what they did was they made those concerns the concern of the women's movement of the 1920s and then 1930s. Um, so they made the concern for equal treatment, the concern for respectable, respectable treatment, in other words, and against sexual harassment, um, central to what uh, women were demanding in the, in the suffrage movement. Great. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> one thing that I love from your book, and I, you know, I have the book, but I also took um, lots of uh, scans. I made scans of the wonderful tables because they, they show all this um, archival, archival research uh, through the different uh, throughout the um, Secretaria de Educación Pública and other uh, locations. And I was wondering if you could, uh, well, there's one table that was very interesting because it was about the different commercial schools uh, and their enrollment and then the actual attendance. Why, what, what explains the low attendance? There's a shift in the 1930s. The, um, the, the socioeconomic status of the women who attended secretarial schools, commercial schools by the 1930s, and this is somewhat impressionistic data. There, there were studies that were done by the Ministry of Education its, itself um, that argue it, but you can also tell from other markers that um, there's a shift in that class status. Um, and so... That's that's one one shift, and the other is is that in the early 1930s, the government uh, supports the, the establishment of the National uh, Polytechnical Institute, which essentially there, there's a power struggle between the women's commercial school and the new um, uh, Polytechnical Institute, um, with the Polytechnical Institute eventually subsuming the the women's commercial uh, uh, school. Um, so that in some ways led to that shift. But then then the requirements that um, for a higher level of education um, was an important factor. So women began looking for other places uh, to get an education. Um, and the federal government really kind of started to... Um, you know, underfund that type of education. They let it devolve into something that was le very much less relevant to the workforce, um, the realities of the workforce. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, 
So perhaps uh, following that um, last question about sources and methodology, could you tell us about you know your research process research process for this book? How the amount, uh, the list of archives that you visited um, is, of course, I mean, not impressive in that, um, in that you know, that's the uh, work of the historian, right? And uh, But how did it work? How, you know, where did you start and what led you to the next um, archive or, um, or source? And how do you look at sources? What, you know, what did you take from these uh, various... Uh, you know, very large spectrum of sources from novels to uh, periodicals to, again, you know, administra- um, administration offices that um, that produced lots and lots of bureaucratic <laughs> papers. Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. You know, sometimes I feel like doing archival research is like doing a jigsaw puzzle in the dark. You know, you're not quite sure what pieces you have or how they go together. Um, my advisor in graduate school said, um, you know, when you're researching a group of people and it's not obvious, there's not an obvious, you know, cache of archival documents, you have to cast a wide net um, and do exactly what you said, Paula, which is to, you know, look at a source and see where it leads you. Um, and for better or for worse, this book took me a really long time to write. Um, I researched and wrote the book for over a decade, during which time I gave birth to and raised two children, held a full-time job, had all sorts of other responsibilities um, that, you know, we all have um, that I'm sure the listeners know. So I had a lot of time to also kind of meditate on the topic and to, um, you know, have people say, oh, hey, have you read this? Have you seen that? Um, So, you know, I sometimes wish it had come out sooner. Uh, but at the same time, it gave me time to to to, th- to think on the topic and think about how these different pieces went together. And to, as you say, you know, go to a lot of archives, read different novels. Um, and then with regard to, you know, how I approach sources, you know, it depends on the source. Everything is produced within a specific context for a particular purpose. Um, and... Of course, one has to take that into account. Um, I think of novels as an important source for a perspective on a particular historical moment. And of course, the novel can't be thought of as a documentary um, or evidence of something that in fact happened, but it is evidence of what an author intended to communicate. Um, So so that was a really important point part of the research. Um, One of the things I love about this book is thinking about the way, you know, nobody's talking about the canon of, um, you know, books and articles written by secretaries. Um, And yet they were, there were some powerful thinkers. Um, These women had, you know, some of them had access to important literary circles. They were able to publish articles um, published books, um, and uh, that the insight of those writers, their voice was particularly compelling to me, um, and shaped the way I approached a lot of the sources as well. Wonderful. No, I really enjoyed the the really um, you know diverse uh, group of sources because I think that's also what makes it uh, what 
makes your book uh, more compelling is that you can grab at that whole cultural context that um, is part of one um, of that one thread. Um, so, uh, is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up the the interview? Sure. Um, I guess I I um, I would say. I would say thank you to you for the interview and the opportunity to make these uh, this history um, visible. I think it's important to understand that, you know, when we see Mexican feminists today mm -hmm. um, spray painting monuments and protesting in the streets against violence against women, against uh, sexual harassment, um, that there's a there's a there's a long history to that activism and to women uh, trying to make visible the kinds of uh, abuse that they're subject to sometimes. Um, and it doesn't, that, that, that history of mobilization doesn't just date back to the 1970s, but to the, back to the 1920s. Mm -hmm. Women denounced sexual harassment in the, in the workplace, um, that they were talking about inequalities in the workplace, about the glass ceiling, um, and that, that, there's a there's a history of activism that we can be proud of, um, but we can also be angry that this is a conversation that's been going on right. for almost a hundred years now, mm -hmm. um, and that these issues have not been you know completely addressed. Mexico has made incredible uh, progress um, and advancements, uh, um, but in Mexico and in the United States, we have a long way to go. We have a long way to go in um, acknowledging the role of women in childcare at the same time that they're, they're participating in the workforce. Um, we have a long way to go in um, making parenting and work compatible. We have a long way to go in terms of how we address sexual harassment in the workplace. Um, I could go on, but I think yes. point. <laughs> I can, I can absolutely, yeah, I can totally agree. And especially as you said before, you know, 10, 10 years seems right. Seems right when you have children, uh, when you have a house too, <laughs> yeah. um, to work at too. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Susie Porter for, uh, being here with me today. Thank you so much for the interview. It was, it was a real pleasure. Thank you all for listening. Uh, this is the New Books Network, the Economic and Business History Channel, and your host, Paula de la Cruz Fernandez. I hope you keep listening. Mm -hmm.